0: Okay, we're reading from 2 Peter, chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others... If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment." This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like beasts, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and accursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words. And, by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning." It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud.
1: It's probably not the friendliest passage in the Bible, is it? It's, it's a strong passage, really, just like Brian was saying before. And not only that, there are, there are bits in it that you, you have to wrestle with as you think about what, what exactly is being said here. So confronting, uh, strong. Uh, there's an outline I've got in a the leaflet there that might help you as we go through it. We're, we're convinced here that all Scripture is inspired by God, including 2 Peter chapter 2, and, and it's profitable for us as we turn our minds and hearts towards it so let's pray that god will actually help us do exactly that profit from it thank you father for your word we thank you that you speak to us clearly and father we pray that as we reflect on it together uh, we'll be encouraged and strengthened in our love and service of you and we pray this in jesus name amen uh, true or false, you don't need to call this out, but I want you to lock away an answer in your mind. True or false, it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you are sincere. doesn't matter what you believe so long as you are sincere. True or false? Don't have to call it out, but thank you. Yeah. It, it, it actually depends, doesn't it? So, for example, if I said to you, blue is obviously the best colour, you know. Uh, autumn is clearly the best season in the year, you might say to me, no, orange. Not that anyone's wearing orange. Yeah, orange is the best colour and summer is obviously the best time of the year, you see. Now, at that point, truth is not really the issue. It's sincerity and conviction around that that matters, right? That sort of issue, not a big deal. Let me change the lens slightly. Uh, this week I discover I have a brain tumour. Okay, it's diagnosed and uh, I therefore the doctor tells me I have to have an operation uh, for this brain tumour to be removed. So I come home and, and tell Sue, you've know, got to be referred off to a specialist. Uh, Sue talks to our neighbours about what's going on and my next door neighbour comes in and says, Paul, you've been such a wonderful neighbour and uh, you know, I'm just, I really would love to do something for you. So I want to offer my services to perform the brain surgery on you, all right? Now, at this point, you need to know that my neighbour is a wonderful man, but he is a greengrocer, okay? Uh, so he's, he runs a fruit and veg store. And I would be thankful for his offer, and he is very good with a knife, right, but just, just with pumpkins rather than heads, you know? And, and at this point, I think truth probably and skills and talents and training probably going to trump sincerity at this point like yeah he might say to me paul i've been looking on the internet you know and i've been using a knife for 40 years i'm really good with it i think i can do this you know i'm not necessarily going to be quite so convinced i don't think you see at one point truth is an opinion at another point i think we'd all agree truth actually has a significant role to play okay What about when it comes to religious thinking, spirituality and questions about relationship with God? Truth or sincerity? For Australians, I think culturally, it normally comes down to a question of sincerity rather than truth. I think culturally... That's the way we function at different points. Let me try and give you an example. Uh, I think it was either last weekend or the weekend before we had the Bathurst 1000. Right? Who can remember when it, when it was the Bathurst 500? Right? Yeah, yeah, a few people here. That's great to see. It's uh, it's not that the race has doubled in time. It's just that we uh, went from imperial to metric. Right? Bathurst 1000. Right? Now Peter Brock used to be uh, and. In many ways, is probably still the best-known racing car driver that Australia has ever produced on those sort of races, right? Brocky. About eight years ago, Peter Brock, uh, race in a car race, crashed his car into a tree. Now, I was really interested to see the way in which the press and the media responded to his death and how they reported it. Right? So these were the sorts of things they said about his death. First thing was, it was wonderful that he died doing what he loved, racing cars. Now, I sort of get the argument, but in the end, it probably doesn't matter too much whether you're taking out the garbage or having a gourmet meal when you die. You know, dead is still dead. You know, So I can't quite work out why doing what you love when you die, especially if the thing that kills you, is actually a real bonus. But that was one thing they reported on. Second thing was this that Brockie was now looking down on all the people that he loved. Just repeatedly said, Brockie's looking down on us now. Now, I don't know where that came from. It was just one of these sort of dream time sort of, you know, ideas that just got put out there. No foundation for it. Third thing that was said was that Brockie was now in Holden heaven, right? And he was driving faster than ever before, doing what he loves, except in Holden heaven. And in heaven, right? the trees are made of rubber, so it's safe. Right? That's actually what was reported. Now, I'm sure it was sort of a bit tongue-in-cheek, but not, not totally. And then the final thing was, Brocky had sort of pseudo Buddhisty sort of views on life and death. And so he wasn't scared of death at all. And therefore, because he didn't fear death, there was nothing to fear about death. That makes sense, doesn't it? Do you understand? There's a whole series of things that were put out there at that time to do with spiritual views and the reality of who God was that all seemed to me to be quite speculative. It seems to me, and you would have picked up from what I was just saying then, that Australians, I think, are quite cynical in life and superstitious in death. That's the nature of our nation and the way we tend to hover around those sort of issues. That's why when we turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, it is so confronting it is extraordinarily confronting because here we come face to face with the god who is uncompromising when it comes to truth we come face to face with a god who is clear that he will judge false teachers we come face to face with the intolerant god the intolerant god And let's look at it together see what we're taught The warning in 2 Peter 2 is about watching out for false teachers. Now, please notice that the judgment here spoken of is not in relation to those who are worshippers of other religions. This is not a chapter about uh, people who believe in Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or something else. This is talking about false teaching in the church that undermines the lordship of Jesus. That's what we're focused on here. Chapter 2, verse 1. There were false prophets among the people. He's referring back to the Old Testament at this point. Just as there will be false teachers among you. Two things in life are certain death and taxes. Yep. And now there's a third false teachers and churches. Right? Death, taxes, false teachers and churches. That's what we're being told here. And they are dangerous. Now, why? they're dangerous well we're told they're dangerous to themselves notice in verse 1 there of chapter 2 it says they bring swift destruction on themselves now when you look at that word swift you might think swift you know like i've known a few false teachers in my time uh, in different sort of contexts in the church and most of them i think are still alive so where's the swift destruction being spoken of here the word uh, for swift here in verse 1, it's, it's the Greek word, you don't need to remember this, but it's takonin, right? And, and what it means is not so much immediately, but unexpectedly or suddenly. See, what you need to bear in mind in this, this letter is that one of the big heresies that was actually being promoted by these false teachers was a denial of the return of Christ, right? Saying that Jesus wasn't coming back and the point that is being made by Peter here is that he will come back. He will come back suddenly and unexpectedly and it will be the day of judgment. So these false teachers are bringing swift, that is, unexpected, sudden judgment on themselves at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's what's in view here. And we'll get more on that return of Jesus when we get to chapter 3 next week. Then you move to verse 3 and we're told that their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. They misrepresent God. Do they think they will escape his judgment? And the answer here is clear. God is not asleep at the wheel and the day of the Lord Jesus Christ will expose it for what it is they're a danger to themselves because they place their eternity at risk through being a false teacher. But they're also dangerous to others. Uh, Verse 18, just pushing a little further into the chapter, we're told that they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. Now I think particularly we're talking about those who are are young believers or or not particularly uh, well grounded in the faith. When I was preparing it reminded me of a guy that uh, I once had the opportunity to sit down and share the gospel with uh, who became a Christian and then I caught up with him for tea one night and he'd been a Christian at this stage I think maybe six or eight weeks not a long time and over tea he said good news Paul he said I'm going to become a Christian tonight. I thought that's a little odd, you know, so I just explored then what he was talking about. He said, Oh, what happened was today I met a guy and I explained I'd been reading the Bible with you and how I'd put my trust in Jesus and he said, That's wonderful, absolutely terrific. And all you need to do now to become a Christian is come to my church tonight and get baptized, and then you'll speak in tongues and then you'll be converted. Right? And uh, I then sat down with this this guy and I just went back to the Bible and went through the gospel and he just wasn't, he didn't seem to be all that convinced. So I pulled out my my ace in the sleeve, you know, I said, do you know, Steve, what you're saying, if it's true, I'm not a Christian. He said, yeah, but you can become one too, you know. And uh, I thought, oh, you know. I think that's the sort of person that, Peter has in mind when he's saying these false teachers are particularly dangerous to those who are making their way in the faith. You see, my wife was catching up with uh, someone just a few weeks ago uh, and keeps catching up with her. She's just become a Christian very recently. And she said, wouldn't you know, soon after she was either just before she became a Christian, just afterwards, she came in contact with someone from a sect, a cult. Yeah, and I think it happens all the time, right? All the time. People get deflected. They're dangerous. They also give God a bad name. Look at verse 2 again. Their depraved conduct brings the way of truth into disrepute. Can I say, every time a church leader is in the news um, for sexual scandal or sexual abuse or for financial impropriety, it drags God's name through the mud by association. It's a horrible thing when that happens the name of Christ is really brought down false teachers, dangerous to themselves, dangerous to other people so here's the thing, how do you actually spot a false teacher how do you do it, apart from telling little pig stories right? how do you actually spot a false teacher to work it out I, I keep thinking, wouldn't it be good if it was only like at the airport I went and picked up someone from the airport at about 7 this morning and I thought, if, if we could somehow put up one of those sort of metal detectors around this door at the back here, except it's a false teacher detector, you know? And as people come through the door, it goes, wah, 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 you know, wolf in sheep's clothing, you know? And all the ushers, not James. other people could go and gang, tackle, drag outside, you know? That's a, Wouldn't that be great? Or, or let's say we had a... Um, a false teacher detector electric charge that went through the lectern, you know, so that every time someone at the front spoke, a false, you know, and we'd know, you know. Like, but it, so it doesn't quite work that way. So how do, you, how do you do it? Notice in verse 1 we're told, these false teachers secretly introduce destructive heresies. It's not, it's not that obvious. Actually, that's the point being made. It's sort of a—it's like a smuggling operation. The secretly is this, the idea of for smuggling. So how do you detect it? A uh, little while ago, I had a an email flick up on my screen. You will have had these emails, and this is Mabatsi or someone like that. You know, wrote to me saying. Uh, a tragic thing had happened to her, her husband in Zimbabwe who was a very powerful and wealthy man. He had died and now she was looking to do something with his money. She had $6 million US that she wanted to transfer for the work of our church because she knew what a wonderful work we were doing. Okay? Oh, how generous. She said, if I'd only sent her the account details for our church, she could transfer the money. So I sent them t es you know, account details. You should be expecting a big influx of money very soon. Now obviously I didn't. Yeah, you know, some cons, I mean, call me a cynic, but you know, some cons I think are, are pretty obvious. But how do you pick up this this secretly smuggling in of heresy? How do you how do you do that? You examine the teaching. And that's why the kids' talk was so simple and helpful. That is, you examine what you're being taught against what the scriptures of the bible say that's the way you do it but at one level i've got to ask is that too broad a test for false teaching Uh, let, let me explain what i mean it seems to me there can be lots of issues that christians may come to slightly different views on when it comes to the bible so let's say we come to slightly different views does that mean one of us is a false teacher or a heretic Not necessarily, especially when you consider what's being said here in 2 Peter 2. So let me try and give you an example. Uh, I'll pick something contentious just just so that you stay with me here. Let's, Let's pick up on the issue of, say, divorce and remarriage. There would be some Christians who, based on what the New Testament teaches, would say Christians should both never divorce and never remarry. Based on some of the things that Jesus says in Mark's Gospel. But if you did a wider sweep of the New Testament, you may come to a conclusion that there are some circumstances in which divorce is quite appropriate and some circumstances in which people can remarry. Christians would divide into three categories at this point. There'd be some who say, no divorce, no remarriage. Some would say, divorce, but no remarriage. And some would say, divorce and the possibility of remarriage over here. Does that mean two of those groups are heretics, false teachers at that point? It's okay, you don't have to respond. Yeah, it's good. Let's take another example baptism. There are some who would say the only legitimate form of baptism is adult baptism, and it should be by full immersion. There are others who would argue that, based on covenantal ideas in the New Testament, it's appropriate for children of believers to be baptised in the community of God's people. So again, we'll have three categories here. We've got a uh, children are fine and they may also think adults are fine. You may have people who say, no, no, only adults and only by full immersion. And then you've got only adults don't care how much water. Right? So two categories here must be heretics and one are true teachers. Well, I'm, I'm not thinking so. Otherwise, I've just resiled a few of my friends to that heresy pile who I think are true believers. So what are we talking about when it comes to this issue of examining teaching against what the Bible says? I want you to notice again verse 1, which is really pivotal for this chapter. Notice how these are described. Destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. Now, I've already indicated that one of the destructive heresies on view of these false teachers was a denial of the return of Jesus in judgment. That's clear and it runs through this letter at different points, but very explicit when we come um, uh, to chapter 3 next week. Now, why is this a destructive heresy? See, let me come back to the issue. Uh, I have friends who have different perspectives on the return of Jesus. Right? There are pre-millennial Christians, there are post-millennial Christians and pan-millennial Christians. All right? I won't go into the details of that. And if you don't understand anything I just said, pre-post-pan, blessed are you. All right? Blessed are you. All right? But there are different views on when Jesus will return. Now, do you understand that's not the issue here? The issue here is not around the details of Christ's return. The issue here is about denying that he will return. That's the heresy that we're talking about here. Now, why is that so damaging? Well, it's damaging because if you reject the return of Jesus, then you have no accountability to God, there is no judgment. That's the first thing. There is no need for godly living while we wait for Jesus to return because there is no accountability and no judgment. There is no issue of sin or forgiveness. Therefore, there's no need for the cross. Uh, It goes on. There's no need to share the gospel because in the end it's compulsory heaven for all. You see, a denial of the return of Christ leads to heresy at almost every level of Christian thinking because of the consequences that flow out of it. That's why it is a destructive heresy. Chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, We looked at this last week. It talks about forgetting that you've been cleansed from past sins. Now at this point we're pointing to a a danger of a heresy of overlooking the importance of the cross. I caught up with uh, an Anglican minister a few years ago and I caught up with him deliberately because I was concerned about his view about Jesus' death. And as we talked, I said, I'm convinced that Jesus died on the cross in my place, taking the punishment I deserve so that God can justly forgive me so I can have a relationship with him for all eternity. Now, he said to me at that point, this is an active Anglican minister, I find that teaching abhorrent. And uh, he said, I reject that in the strongest terms. Now, at that point, here is someone who has responsibility for teaching others. And in fact, this person was a chaplain in the school. Do you understand what a destructive heresy that is? Denying the one who has bought us from our sins. That's the sort of issue that Peter has in mind. He talks about it being a denial of the sovereign Lord false teaching in the end will always be a denial of the sovereignty of Jesus. Now let me unpack that because the denial of the sovereignty of Jesus is really just saying I deny the right of Jesus to exercise authority as my Lord, as Lord of the universe over my life. It's actually the desire to live independently of God under my own steam, according to my own rules and my own sorts of outcomes it is destructive and false teachers therefore you understand will often set themselves up as powerful um, gurus that people depend upon and look to instead of the lord jesus himself It will be a characteristic that follows check out their teaching also check out their motives Uh, notice uh, back in chapter one there's the idea that knowledge Leads to godly living. Uh, that idea is expressed. So when you're looking at false teachers, you want to check their motives and whether what they believe is working itself out in godly living. That's a natural test to apply at this point. Now, teachers, Bible teachers, pastors, we are not perfect. You, you, I know you've already worked that out, right? But, but we are not perfect. We are, like all of us, uh, still working out uh, godliness in our lives. Uh, behaviours that honour Jesus right? but I want you to notice the sort of words that are used to describe these false teachers verse 2 it talks about their shameful ways verse 3 in their greed they'll exploit you verse 13 they revel in their pleasures while they feast with you the pleasures word there is um, the word hedone. it's uh, the word we get hedonist from you know, that's a pretty apt description, uh, self-indulgent. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery and they never stop sinning. Uh, the, the minister I mentioned before that denied Jesus' death to sin, it was only a short time after that that he was exposed as being uh, in a sexual relationship outside marriage. And that the, the two sort of go together, the false teaching leading to that sort of uh, behavior but it can express itself in all sorts of different ways Uh, greed is one of ones greedy for money pastors uh, teachers are often warned about this danger i remember being in a a staff meeting one time in this in the city that i was leading and that morning i couldn't find my diary and i couldn't find my watch (laughs) and i said to the staff team we are in big trouble here. We are totally rudderless because I haven't got a diary or a watch. Who knows what's going to happen? You know? And uh, I was just making a joke. After lunch, I came back in and my pigeonhole in the office, there it was, a new watch. Huh? And I thought, well, what do you know? So next week, I explained my car had broken down. You know? And uh, <laughs> came back in after lunch, looked for the keys, went there. No, no I didn't do that. But do you, do you understand the danger? Christians are normally very generous And very gracious and very kind. And pastors can trade on that and manipulate it for their own advantage if they're not set on serving the flock rather than benefiting from the flock. Now, I'm not urging you to be cynical uh, because I think you have, uh, and Stephen and uh, Kathy and other leaders in this church, wonderful leadership. And as a church, we put in place things to try and make sure we're, we're protecting. So, for example, we ever get given anything, uh, we declare it, and if we get given any money, we just pass it on to the church. And the reason we do that is because we try and pay our pastors in such a way that they don't have to worry about money. We don't give them squillions of dollars, but we try and pay them so that money is not the big issue because we don't want them worried about that or focused on that. So we pay them so they can look after themselves and their family. And so if they receive any more money, they give it to the church so I think that's a good principle to operate with and discourages any sense of of manipulation in that way watch out and the other thing we're told is to assess their ministries look at verse 17 uh, we're told these people are springs without water mist driven by a storm a few different images there but the idea is like having a car without petrol doesn't go so well you know. and they have all the words is what we've been told here, but no substance when it comes to a ministry that is productive. In the end, what we're being told about false teachers is that it's all about them, not about God and his glory. You see, the the whole question of whether your Bible teachers at whatever level in a church, whether at this level, small groups, children, youth, whatever it is whether they point people to the Lord Jesus Christ or to themselves? That is the question that's being asked. God and his people are their focus. So what's God's assessment of these false teachers? Uh, We do. We do come to strong language here. You often hear people today talking about the fact that God is love. God is love. I like to think of God as love that sort of expression. And of course a loving God would never condemn anyone to hell. If you suggest that God might do that in our particular cultural setting then you'll be viewed as as hateful, a bigoted fundamentalist and an extremist. But in the end it's not what you think and it's not what I think. That's not what counts. It's actually what God thinks, what God has declared to be the case. That's the reality. And so what happens here in this chapter is we're given three events from Genesis that are referred to. And they're they're all events of the judgment of God that's on view. Verse 4, God didn't spare the angels when they sinned. And that's quoting from Genesis chapter 6 and you could ask me a question about this later on but I won't be able to answer it, just letting you know. That is, it's a a reference to uh, a portion of chapter 6 in Genesis that people struggle to work out the details of. The the result is very clear, the implications are clear, the details were actually hard to sift at that point. Didn't spare the angels when they sinned. Uh, The next one is verse 5, 2 Peter 2 verse 5. It refers to the flood in Genesis 6 through 9, and the way in which the world was judged, but Noah and seven were spared. We then get to verse 6, and it refers to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19, and the way in which Sodom and Gomorrah, those cities, were judged, and Lot was spared. Two points are being made. The first is, it comes out in verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. It's actually uh, hard to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there will be ridicule or persecution or rejection. Uh, but friends, the Lord knows and the Lord knows how to save. And again, I think particularly what we have on view is when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and the vindication of those who have put their trust in him. That's the first point. The second point is this, though. The Lord does know how to judge. Verse 9, to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment when Jesus comes. Or verse 13, they'll be paid back. That is, there is a day of justice coming. At the Olympics, um, each Olympics we have these days, the drug testing is so rigorous And always there are people who win medals who are then wiped out and other people are awarded the medals. Here's the thing I find sad. It is sad that when someone wins a gold medal and then two weeks later after the testing comes out we discover they're a drug cheat, you can't for the life of you remember who came second and who actually should have won the gold medal. It just seems so unfair, doesn't it? And inappropriate. False teachers rob God of his glory and it is so inappropriate and so does deserve the consequence that they reap and the judgment that is coming. And what we're being told here is that God has that in hand. Don't worry, he has it in hand. So how do we guard the truth? How do we guard the truth? Uh, A few points just as I finish up. The first is we do need a commitment to God's word. Back in chapter 1, verse 19, this is what we're told. We have the word of the prophets made more certain. We have a, a very privileged position because we stand this side of the Lord Jesus Christ and the testimony to him we have in the scriptures. God's word, by the power of his spirit, will be right at the centre of our life together. Now, let me by default tell you what's not at the centre. What is not at the centre of this church are leaders. What is not at the centre of this church are programmes. What is not at the centre of this church is the warm family fellowship we enjoy together. That is not at the centre of this church. What is not at the centre of this church is the loving pastoral care you will receive from one another. Now... Those things are all good. It's good to have leaders and programs and fellowship and care and love. Don't get me wrong. They're all good things, but they're not at the centre of our life together. God and his word, by the work of his spirit, is at the heart, driving those other activities and life together. God speaks through his Bible to us. He does that when we read it and reflect on it on a Sunday. He does it as we gather in small groups week by week. He does it when our children get together. He does it when our youth get together. He does it personally when we read the word by ourselves. That is the way in which it works. And we measure by the scriptures that faithfulness. Now points, this will be contested. Right? And you'll think, no, no, we're a Bible-teaching church, all good. You know? No. I'll tell you why. One of our other churches, a while ago, an issue arose in the youth group. Uh, and one of the issues in this youth group was uh, parents were concerned. They're concerned for their teenage kids that they might wander uh, from the faith. And they were saying, look, I think, we've, I think we teach too much Bible and don't have enough fun. Now, I think youth groups should be fun, don't get me wrong. Uh, but do you understand the tension there? That is, I've... I've been a parent of teenagers, right? It, not that long ago, right? And uh, I was desperate for my kids to stay and to be enmeshed and to press on. And so the risk at that point is that I'll be willing to, yeah, you know, we'll have a sort of a fast on the Bible for a little while and just have fun, you know, until they get to a point where they're more stable and then we'll get the Bible back in there, right? Do so you to say that it's just, just fatal, fatally flawed, right? Right? Uh, that is, that the Bible can be contested in terms of its centrality in our life together. And you can wheel that out at a number of different points in terms of the way in which our life works together. Bible, central, all measured by the Scriptures. Second thing is this, we, we do need discernment and courage. Uh, discernment to work out what are, the, what are the issues that we disagree on And which of those might be issues where there is heresy at stake as opposed to just a disagreement on the way in which we interpret the Bible at different points. Now, wisdom tells you that there are issues that Christians wrestle with from time to time that are not matters of heresy but are still matters they disagree on. So in my... I've only been a Christian, you know, a bit over 30 years uh, but I've seen a few of them in my time. Uh, issues like attitude to alcohol should we abstain is it okay to have some in moderation Uh about whether it's appropriate for christians to dance uh, who would believe it you know but there, there you go uh, baptism adult children how much water uh, sabbath what is it appropriate for christians to be able to do on a sunday uh, uh, not so much initiative Music, right? will not you say so thankful there weren't any drums out here this morning, right? I mean, because we all know drums are the devil's music, you know. Uh, you, you understand. I've got my tongue in my cheek, all right? It's okay. Right? But that's been an issue in the past for Christians. None of those are matters of heresy. Some of them are just matters of personal preference. We need to have humility as we sit under the word of God and grace when it comes to one another on those sort of issues but we also do need courage because at points there are convictions we cannot afford to turn sideways on when they come up in our context together and i've already mentioned some of those today grace love uh, but conviction and spines of steel at points absolutely critical how do we guard the truth? I'm going to finish where the chapter finishes, actually. Verse 22. It's a fairly gross image, really. Uh, verse 22. Let me read it. Of them the, the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Right? How, do you, how do you guard the truth? Right, stay away from pigs and don't eat vomit. Right? That's what That's what it's saying. I mean I remember one of our kids in a high chair one time, right? You have got a sense where this is going, don't you, you know? And I had a great gag reflex, right? And threw up on the tray and then scooped it up and started eating, right? Now I didn't need to tell that story, but I'm really trying I'm trying to make a point that to, to get you to pick up the grossness of the image that's being put before us here. Friends, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have been cleansed from your past sins, washed clean. (laughs) That is just extraordinary, isn't it? That God in his kindness would just completely cleanse you from your foulness before him. God does that out of his great generosity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he calls us to a life of service. A life of serving him and serving his people. That's what we're called to do, called to be. False teachers uh, will appeal to your desire to self-serve. And in the end, false teachers will drag you back into sin that you've escaped from that will be the consequence of their teaching they'll pander to your sinful desires and make you humanistic in your thinking and your attitudes and what Peter says is here be very clear brothers and sisters in Christ who've been cleansed washed renewed sanctified stay away from the pigs don't eat vomit right Stay away from the pigs, don't eat vomit. Let me preface. Heavenly Father, some of the images here are strong uh, and yet we know sometimes we just need to um, be squarely addressed right between the eyes when it comes to these matters. And Father, we pray that you'll help us to heed this word, not not to discount it, uh, to be on the alert, to be treasuring the word that you've entrusted to us. And Father, to keep encouraging one another as we read the word, to apply it to our lives, to do it with grace, yet with clarity and courage, to stand firm where that's required. So Father, we commend ourselves, we commend this church to you, our relationships to you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.